Well, as we continue studying the topics that are covered in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we come tonight to consider more generally the sacraments. In the future, we'll deal with each sacrament in particular, with baptism and the Lord's Supper. Tonight, we're going to talk more about what the Confession has to say in general about the doctrine of the sacraments. So I'm going to begin simply by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 14 through 22. This is God's holy word given to the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth. And so we read here the very word of God, for it is inspired by God and is therefore inerrant. So 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons." Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This ends the reading of God's holy word for us, at least for the moment. And let's uh, briefly pray. Lord, we do pray indeed that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word this evening and its hearing. That we might each be edified and built up in our knowledge of you and of ourselves and thereby be all the more empowered by your Holy Spirit to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, of course, it was uh, not too awfully long ago that I exposited this passage we just read as we were making our way through 1 Corinthians, and it's not my point tonight to go back over that, but simply uh, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of sacraments, and so our focus at some point in the sermon will Uh, We'll come to look at verse 16 here. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ or the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion or the fellowship of the body of Christ? Most times that the Lord has made a covenant with human beings, he has ordained some sign or signs of that covenant. Even the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden might be said to have been signified by the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, particularly that second tree. The tree of life probably had another role in terms of coming to a point, at least potentially, had Adam obeyed then he would have been confirmed 
at some point in his obedience after whatever period of probation, however long that would have been, and been able to eat of the tree of life. But the, the fruit of that second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as long as it was uneaten, as long as it was obvious that Adam had not taken or partaken of that fruit, it was a sign of Adam's being in right covenant relationship with the Lord. The eaten fruit, after Adam and Eve did partake of it, was proof of Adam's mortality and his fallen sin nature, that he had broken covenant with God. So we could even see that early in human history, there was a covenant sign. But God has more explicitly ordained covenant signs throughout his historic dealings with mankind. Jesus' righteous life and atoning death, of course, rectify our breaking of the covenant of works. And because this relies on his work and not on our works, for us, from our perspective, this covenant is a covenant of grace. The covenant that God made between himself and Christ, that the Father, Son, and Spirit eternally made, that the Son would be the Lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, and that he would come into the world at some point in history and bear the penalty of his people's sins. That we call the covenant of grace, because the blessings we receive are gifts that we did not earn. Under that covenant of grace, God has progressively revealed himself in history, and his plan of redemption has been more and more fully revealed until being uh, completely shown in Christ Jesus. The salvation of his elect are shown historically in the Bible uh, through what we might call various sub-covenants. All of the other covenants in Scripture fall under the covenant of grace. When God makes these covenants, he tends to seal them with some sign that we can see. The covenant with Noah, never to destroy the world again by a flood, was signified with the rainbow. And it doesn't need to be the fact that that was the first time ever that light had been refracted through water. Uh, it's just simply that God set that sign apart from that point on as a sign of his promise to Noah not to destroy the world by a flood again. And it's a great shame of mankind that our culture today has co-opted that sign for things that God explicitly calls wicked in Scripture. God did not intend it so. The covenant with Abraham was signified with circumcision. The covenant with Israel made through Moses was signified with a continuation of circumcision and with the sacrificial system and especially culminating in the Passover. In Christ, everything signified by circumcision and the sacrificial system and Passover was fulfilled, but the Lord instituted then baptism 
and the Lord's Supper, which were foreshadowed particularly by circumcision and Passover, to be the new covenant sacraments. These are covenant signs and seals, as we will see. So that's where we'll start. What is a sacrament? What do we mean? You won't actually find the word sacrament in the Bible. What does it mean? What do we mean by it? We, just as we use certain terms like Trinity to, uh, to subsume or to uh, summarize doctrines that we find in Scripture, and instead of listing all the doctrines we find in Scripture and that whole system, we'll just say the doctrine of the Trinity and then we'll, so that we know what we're talking about. Well, sacrament's one of those words that we use. You're not going to find it directly in Scripture, but you're going to find that the word uh, brings together concepts that we find in Scripture. So what do we mean then? What concepts are we talking about when we say a sacrament? Our confession tells the Reformed position on this. What does the Bible have to say about these things that we call sacraments? It says, Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God, to represent Christ and his benefits, and to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. So the first thing we see there is a sacrament is a sign. It's not only a sign, but it is a sign. Think of Genesis 17.11, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That is, it's an outward thing, something that can be seen or observed or felt by a human being, and it points to something else. Just like a sign on the road might tell you which direction a particular town is. And that, what would that sign say? It will say the name of the town, and there's an arrow pointing that direction. It might tell you how many miles it is. Well, the sign isn't the town, but it represents it. You can't see that town yet, but you can see the sign. The stop sign is not the concept of stopping itself, but it tells you, it points to the concept of stopping and that you ought to stop where the stop sign is. Romans 4.11 says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Uh, notice that that sign in this case of circumcision is also a seal of righteousness. Sacraments seal God's people as his. And there are ways in which we can think of sealing as in like the way we might think of sealing an envelope. You know, you're sticking something there. The sacraments do, in a sense, apply benefits, but that's not the primary way that we use seal or the way that the scripture uses the term seal. When it says that, uh, or when we say that a sacrament, or here in this case the sacrament of circumcision in Romans 4, is a sign of of circumcision is a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had. In ancient times, a an individual, any property owner, especially kings, but uh, even any property owner, would have a seal to mark things as his own. In, in very ancient times, say in the times of, 
of Jacob and his sons. Remember when Judah gave up his seal as a sign, as a pledge? Uh, it was it was a it probably would have been what was called a cylinder seal. And this thing had markings on it, and you would roll it. It was round. It was a little cylinder. You would roll it over clay, and it would leave a particular mark. We've probably all at some point in our life seen a signet ring. I'd say uh, a ring that that can seal usually would put wax on an envelope and you would mark that. So this would uh, mark it as coming from a certain person. Kings always had a royal seal that would be used on documents to show that the document belonged to the king. That it had his authority. So it marks something off as belonging to someone. And so these sacraments mark a certain group of people off as belonging especially to the Lord. As we see in Genesis 17, any man joining the people of Abraham had to be circumcised. He had to receive that sign. It was to seal them, to mark them off as being a part of Abraham's people. If there was any male of Abraham's household who was not so marked, not so sealed, he was to be considered outside of the household. We read this in Genesis 17. Let me just read here, verses 1 through 14. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk with me, walk before me, and be blameless. And I will make you, boy, I can't read tonight. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. (coughs) So there we see that this was a sign. It was a Visible thing pointing to a spiritual reality of belonging to God as a special covenant people. And it marked them off as a special covenant people. And notice also, as our confession says, to be a sacrament, such a sign, 
has to be declared and instituted by God himself. It can't be something that we've just made up on our own. Things that we make up on our own are not sacraments. Things that come by human tradition are not sacraments. Things that God institutes but, don't, but aren't instituted particularly for his covenant people are not sacraments. Circumcision is made a sacrament by God there in Genesis 17. Likewise, Passover in Exodus 12, the Lord's Supper in the Gospels, baptism in Matthew 28. These are things instituted by God himself in the case of the new covenant sacraments by God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, instituting baptism and circumcision, or rather baptism and, uh, and the Lord's Supper as the new covenant sacraments. Each sacrament represents Christ and his benefits for his people. Under the old covenant, circumcision represented <coughs> excuse me, the cutting away of the sin nature, the renewal of the heart. In Deuteronomy 10, we read of various sins of the people and the command to keep the commandments of God Starting at verse 12, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as is this day, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. God requires that you be a different kind of people. And therefore, your heart needs to be circumcised, as it were, so that you might not be stiff-necked, that you might not be stubborn and resisting God. And so there we see that circumcision really is pointing to something inward. It's pointing to a change of heart Jeremiah 4.4 4 speaks of something quite similar, really, really speaking of the same thing, saying, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like a fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. So this is talking about a, a change, an inward change, a change of heart. Similarly, baptism represents renewal of the heart. Renewal of the heart through washing with water. It points to new birth. It points to cleansing. It points to a change of nature. The, the death of the old self, as, as in Romans 6, we see that we die to sin and live to God. And the baptism represents that. We die with Christ in baptism. And so just as we're united to his death in baptism, so we're united to his resurrection. And so we're assured of resurrection to come, but also that we now need to walk in newness of life. That's said in Romans 6. The Passover represents God's passing over his chosen people when he brought judgment on a sinful world. That happened by means of a sacrificial lamb whose blood covered those being passed over. The perfect Lamb of God, Jesus became that sacrifice. 
And his broken body and shed blood are represented in the broken bread and the poured out wine. Now our union with Christ in his atoning death is signified when we consume those things that represent his body and his blood. So partaking of those covenant signs and seals, those things which set us apart as God's people, gives us a stake, as the confession says, an interest in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, as we saw just a little while ago, the cup that we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Outwardly, a sacrament makes a distinction between those in the covenant community and the rest of the world. Exodus 12, 48, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. So again, they have to be set apart. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person, person shall eat of it. 1 Corinthians 10.21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. So sacraments make a distinction between the covenant people and everyone else. That's in part because a sacrament is also a pledge. It's a solemn engagement on our part to serve Christ according to his commandments. Romans 6.4, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so the confession goes on and says, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. So all, all that's pointing out is that you notice in Genesis 17.10 that we saw that circumcision was called the covenant. This shall be the covenant, you shall be circumcised in your flesh. Well, that wasn't the covenant itself, but it pointed to it. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, and the cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of sins. Uh, Circumcision was not literally the covenant. The cup is not literally the covenant. But they're so united to it that they can sometimes be called the covenant that they signify. We might point out that the bread is not literally Jesus' body, but sacramentally it so signifies his body that we can call it the body of Christ when we're partaking of the sacrament. So because the elements signify and are identified with the covenant, but aren't literally the covenant themselves. They aren't magical. They don't depend on any power of the one performing the sacraments. As we see in 1 Corinthians 11, what it depends on is the faith and the status of the one partaking. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
The effect of the sacrament relies on the relationship God has with the one partaking of the sacrament and vice versa. So if it turned out someday that I was a complete apostate and was a a wicked man not deserving of being a minister of the gospel, not qualified biblically to be a minister of the gospel, well, would that undo all of the baptisms I've done? Would that mean that none of the times we partook of the Lord's Supper together and I administered it, that that, none, that didn't count for you and didn't nourish you spiritually? Of course not. Those things have effect because God gives them effect, not because of the person administering them. And so the confession rightly points out, the grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. They're not magic. It's conferred by God. (laughs) Neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it, but upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution which contains, together with a precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. There's benefit given to worthy receivers according to Scripture. Just as we saw, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Romans 2, 28 and 29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. 1 Peter three twenty one. Baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. The benefits are promised in the words of institution, as I mentioned. Take, eat, for this is Christ's body. This is His blood shed for the remission of sins. We were baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we've already seen that a sacrament must be ordained directly by God as a sign of a particular covenant with His elect people. So what about other things that some people like to consider sacraments? Marriage was instituted by God. That's the one that comes nearest to meeting the standards of sacraments that some people call sacraments but aren't actually. Because it was instituted by God, but it was instituted not for His covenant people as a particular covenant sign only for them. It was instituted for all of mankind. Likewise, God has never instituted any forms of ordination or commanded last rites or the sacrament of penance, so-called. And you'll notice that with weddings. God instituted marriage, but He didn't institute a wedding ceremony. But with actual sacraments, God tells you, here's how you shall do it. And we have to keep that formula, or we're not properly showing the sign of the covenant. God has not given us under the New Testament any sacraments but baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so the confession affirms that, saying there be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. 
they're pointing out here. Uh, we've looked at scriptures already pertaining to those that show that those are established as sacraments. 1 Corinthians 4.1 tells us that the ministers are the stewards of the mysteries of God, and that's often uh, pointed out as being something that shows the responsibility of those who uh, serve the church in church office, ordained office. Um, and that would include then that they have to handle the sacraments rightly in order to help assure that the sacraments aren't misused, lest they lose their significance. Uh, has to be the properly trained and ordained ministers of the church, or elders of the church that perform the sacraments. And then lastly, as we've already seen here, the sacraments of the Old Testament in regard to spiritual things, thereby signify and exhibited, were, of, were for substance the same with those of the new. And we'll probably get into that a little bit more when we talk about the specific sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we'll see how they relate to the Old Covenant sacraments, particularly to circumcision and Passover. But in closing then this evening, I'll just point out what our shorter catechism has to say. A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, so by things that you can perceive with your senses, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. So our exhortation this evening is simply this. Honor the sacraments, rightly use them, don't neglect them, but make proper use of them for your walk with Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sacraments, which are indeed signs and seals of the redemption that we have by faith in Christ Jesus. Teach us to honor them, to make careful use of them, to make proper use of them, as by them we are sealed as Christ's people and given the benefits of his covenant. So we pray that we will ever use these sacraments rightly and never neglect to use them. We pray this in the name of the one who established them, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.